0: How effective is the Christian racial reconciliation movement in addressing modern-day racism? Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, a clinical psychologist, theologian, and minister, serves as Associate Professor of Practical Theology at the Mercer University McAfee School of Theology. In this episode, Sherry Osteen talks with Shaniqua about her recent book, I Bring the Voices of My People, in which Shaniqua helps us name the racially divided world we are in and provides us with a womanist framework to construct a theology of racial reconciliation. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary.
1: Shaniqua, thank you so much for talking with me today.
0: Thank you. I'm uh, excited to be here and for this conversation.
1: So I'd love to dive right in and ask you, how did you know it was the necessary moment uh, to write your book, I Bring the Voices of My People?
2: I knew I was going to write this book the moment, um, really as soon as I got introduced to the racial reconciliation movement. I remember being a student in seminary, sitting in a class on racial reconciliation and thinking, I'm gonna write something about this one day, but feeling like I needed to offer something different. And so I spent nearly 10 years just living In the movement, reading everything I could, going to every conference I could, experiencing it firsthand as a participant, not not just as a research, but because um, I was someone who was part of that movement. And and then finally got to a point where I realized what what it was from the beginning that I knew was missing. Because from the beginning, I knew something was missing, and that was the thing I wanted to write about, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And it took a while for me to realize what that was. And so it finally got to a point where I thought, okay, I I know what it is, and I know what I'm going to write about. and, 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 And so it was really getting to that point and arriving at that point of my own maturity of thought process before I could do it.
1: So when you were a seminary student, and you just had a vague sense that there was something missing... How would you briefly describe what racial reconciliation was at that time?
2: Racial reconciliation, as I was first introduced to it, was often the stories of Black and white men usually developing friendship, right? It was about white men moving into Black neighborhoods. It was about pastors of um, Black and white churches partnering together. But a lot of it was very friendship-based with occasional dose of issues from other countries uh, a- around the world. So Rwanda, South Africa were often lifted up as examples. And even then the examples often focused on forgiveness. It was about how the Black people in those countries or how the um, the Tutsis in Rwanda had forgiven the Hutus, right? It, it was always emphasizing that the victim has to forgive the The oppressor. and and so that was really the model that I was introduced to,
1: which certainly still has a lot of traction in a lot of places.
2: Yes, um, I was reading something recently, and you know and and it had a, a whole section
1: on forgiveness and how so much of this is about forgiveness. So let's take that friendship idea. Lots of people want to point to friendships or even just individual relationships as an entry point to start talking about racial reconciliation. So how do you respond to that now after you've been soaking in this work for much longer and it's no longer vague to you what some of the problems are?
2: Yes. And I think, you know, part of what the racial reconciliation movement does is it not only looks at friendship as the starting point, it looks at friendship as the goal. It sees that having friendships between white people, and um, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color That that is what we're looking for. So we talk about it as an end to the segregation of the eleven o'clock hour on Sunday morning. So many people in that movement see the establishment of multiracial churches as we're doing reconciliation, right? Because people are together, and so you still you still see that um, a lot in 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 the field. which which comes from a faulty understanding of what racism is. It That is based on this idea that racism is primarily a problem of we are divided and we don't know each other. And that if we simply got to know each other, that then the enmity between the races would, would cease. And so you still see people living into that and using that as a model.
1: Let's circle back to that idea that we don't know each other, because like you said, that based on a certain understanding of what race is. So I think let's talk about that. You spend a lot of time in the book unpacking whiteness and pointing out that that's a necessary task. So let's spend a little time exploring what is race? Why is it important to also understand whiteness as a construct? Yeah.
2: So Race is a social construct, meaning um, that it is something that humans invented. It is a way that we decided to categorize people, mostly based on phenotype, how people look, but also based on heredity, where people come from. So heredity in terms of nationality, where people come from, where we think your lineage is from, if you're African and have dark skin, right? If you're from Europe and have, have light skin, we make decisions about that. And a lot of people focus on that and say, okay, so we need to end racial categorization. That's also the problem. But the reality is that humans, we always create categories. We create categories about what it means to be American versus Canadian, right? The the boundary line between America and Canada, um, the US and Canada is actually a fiction. It's something we made up, but we, we, we recognize that and we say it's real. And so even something that is a social construct has a real impact on people's lives. In race in particular, what is really interesting is that the, the, the construct we know as race really um, began to solidify uh, with slavery. And so that race was a construct that was used. Um, it was It was developing outside of slavery and had done that, but then with slavery, it took on a whole new impetus because in the US context, for example, when the U.S. moved to a race-based slavery system, meaning that to be Black was to be born a slave, that you were considered enslavable unless you had free papers, right? You had to have papers demonstrating an exception to the law of the land. And the law of the land was Black meant slave, white meant free. And so in that context, whiteness becomes the the thing that everybody who's not black wants to prove themselves as being. And so whiteness begins to develop this sort of culture around it because people other immigrants coming on in want to make sure that they are categorized rightly, right? Or we could say categorized whitely. They want to make sure that they're categorized in the free group. And so white culture begins to develop into a very formidable system in which people, immigrants, um, very conscientiously try to be like. We see that happening even today, where children of immigrants don't want to stand out. They want to be just American, right? And by just American, they mean like white Americans. They don't. They don't want to seem like they're Polish. Um, family. They don't want to seem like they're Eastern European, their, their um, Middle Eastern relatives, right? They want to buy into the culture of whiteness. And so that race and racism are not just about division, but it's about who gets to be in the category called white and who gets to partake of the privileges of whiteness which historically have been freedom and still in some ways today are freedom when we look at mass mm-hmm. incarceration.
1: Yeah, so whiteness isn't just a benign thing. It has become, because of our legacy of slavery, a goal toward which people must strive. Exactly, yes. So you've also used the phrases colorism and pigmentocracy, I believe. Can you break those down a little bit for us and tell us why they're significant?
2: Yeah, so in a system that values whiteness, people are measured not just on whether they are white versus black versus other racial ethnic identities but within racial groups people are also measured based on how closely they approximate white aesthetics white standards of beauty right so how how light their skin is how straight their hair is, how long their hair is. And so what we see is this colorism was a term developed by Alice Walker to identify the reality, the factual reality that people of color who have lighter skin um, and who, um, who have features that approximate white standards of beauty often are treated differently, right? Will still experience racism, right? They still experience racism. But within their racial ethnic group, they might be given more advantages, not just by members of our, their racial ethnic group, but by white people as well. And so we see that across the world, in India, in Africa, people with light skin tend to marry higher in terms of income. They tend to have higher salaries. Even when they're doing the same type of work, they're given higher salaries. They're often judged as being more beautiful judged as being more intelligent. They have a whole host of of, of, um, advantages. Even light-skinned babies are adopted at a higher rate than dark-skinned babies, right? So that there's this whole plethora of privileges that come not just with white skin, but also with light skin.
1: That's really striking. In response in the book, you have a section that I think you titled, Yes, All White People. Yes. (laughs) Um, And which I think points at the, the reality that, I mean, there's data, right, to show that this kind of something like pigment matters in the way that we order society. Right. Um, and so whether people intend to participate in that system or not, you are a participant. It's in a sense, we've inherited this system. How do you respond to this, this idea that individual intentions or individual naivete, how do we begin to talk about that?
2: Right. So there's this this myth that racism is about feelings, how people feel about each other again. So it is the idea that if we change our feelings and if we have relationships, if white people have relationships with people of color, if white people don't experience hostility towards an African-American, if they don't experience fear when they see an African-American coming down the street, then they're fine, right? They're not racist. It's like, whew, I passed a test. Uh, I'm, I'm right, not exactly. racist. no good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like that, like that's a benchmark. Like you have to have a certain number of, of friends. I actually saw friends having a conversation on um, social media, a group of women of color saying, Has anybody ever gotten the sense that you're part of a white woman's collection? Right? Like that that you th- th- a white woman has a collection of women of color friends that then she can point to and say see i'm not racist um and so it's it's that idea right that it's all about our our feelings and so people focus on their feelings and say then i'm not racist i don't benefit from the system but the system is not about your feelings the system is about whiteness and who Who is white, not just who calls themselves white, because that's another thing people like, well, I don't consider myself white. It doesn't matter what you consider yourself because racial identities are um, not just the identities we buy into. They are the identities that are imposed on us. It It is the way in which the world sees us. And so if the world sees you as white and treats you as white, you're going to get white privilege. You didn't have to do anything to earn it. You were just born in white skin in the United States. But simply by being born in white skin in the United States, you are participating in a system of racism unless you are participating in, in, in forming an anti-racist world. So your default state is being a participant in a racist society.
1: And uh, I mean, this has been thrown into stark relief this week as we heard the, the news of Ahmad Arbery um, and heard his story that. Um, yes, yes. He's certainly a participant in a system, he not of his creation. And so are the men who hunted him down while he was out for a run.
2: You know, I, I have a, a, a friend from seminary who has pastored for a good eight, nine years. And he's a white male, pastored in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And, and he posted this morning, he said, jogging, I've jogged through that 90% Black neighborhood on countless number of mornings over those years. And not once did anybody ever see me as a threat, even though I clearly didn't belong. Even though I'm clearly an outsider, um, not once did anybody ever call the police on me. Not once did anybody ever feel like they needed to confront me about who I was and why I was there. And certainly no one ever felt the need to do that violently, that he never felt like he was going to be at risk in that type of way from being a white man in a black neighborhood. But this idea that you can't even presume safety just in running. There's another case this morning that is coming up out of Indianapolis, Sean Reed, of a police shooting that was was filmed on Facebook Live because he, he went live once the police started chasing him. And so even, even in that way, there are some characteristic ways that white people will respond to those cases that actually show the culture of whiteness that white people have been indoctrinated into. And one is, we don't know what happened. Let's wait, right? So let's see what the system does. So I talk about these four hallmarks of whiteness and one of which is trust in the system, trust in authority. And so a characteristic response of white people when these stories comes out is, we need to wait and see what happens. Let's let it work through this because
1: system. we have faith that the justice system. Is yes, going to do the
2: justice works. system is going to do its work. So all we have to do is wait, and see if the system does the right thing. And then, if the system doesn't do the right thing, then maybe we need to do something. But there's this assumption that, um, well, why was he running? Obviously, if they chased him, something must have been happening, right? If they felt the need to shoot him, something must have been happening, right? And so, again, it's because you trust that the system doesn't go bad. The tri- the system treats people fairly because if you have been able to assume fairness in how you've been treated, you assume it's the same way for other people, right? And then the other thing is um, conformity is another mark. And so, you know, silence. Um, The system of whiteness requires silence, people to be silent in the face of evil. People had to be silent in the face of slavery, right? And so people will see this and say, well, that doesn't affect me. Um, I'm not going to speak up about it. And so I'm just going to go on about my business because I don't want to stand out. I don't want to seem like the angry person. I don't want to seem odd to my white friends and my white family members. And so that you have these incidences that come up over and over again, these killings that come up over and over again, and there is just utter silence about it.
1: I love that you use language of principalities and powers, and there's a true need for those things to be torn down, which you can't do if your mo is is silence or inaction or even timidity. Talk us into what does sin have to do with this? <laughs> it seems obvious, but I think it's worth exploring.
2: Yeah. Um, so, you know, Jim Wallace recently wrote a book, um, America's Original Sin, in, in, in which he's taking off this notion that many African-Americans and other people have been saying for a long time that slavery, um, the enslavement of of Africans and the genocide of Native Americans are um, America's original sin. It is the, the foundation on which our society was constructed. And That And we've never dealt with that foundation. We've never dealt with the displacement, the land theft, and and the mass murder of Indigenous Americans. And we've never dealt with the kidnapping and the enslavement and also the mass murder of African Americans. And so that's the foundation that we're working with. And that sin shows up in all forms of our society, in our criminal justice system. We are now seeing firsthand the health system in ways that we've ne- you know that we've not talked about as much health disparities and how racism is born out in health disparities.
1: Yeah, and as the pandemic unfolds, it's lifted the veil. Yes, on that. Yeah, for more people. Yes, certainly.
2: and so people are seeing. Oh, wait, this affects that too, right? And, and you, can't, you can't fight that by just hoping that it'll go away. Um, you can't fight that and you can't change that by assuming that that's just the fault of a few bad apples right we've often been taught that white supremacy that's something that just a few bad you know people do the rest of people are good and so if everybody else just continues being good these problems will go away but we see over and over again that doesn't happen that if we are going to defeat transform the powers we have to actively engage them they don't they don't change by themselves they don't fall by themselves
1: we have to do that work we've been talking about race in general but you come to this conversation from the particularity of a womanist perspective tell me what unique contribution that makes it's significant
2: Yes. And so, you know, womanism centers the perspectives of Black women and says that we want to center our lived experience. And that is how we make claims about the world. That's how we make claims about who God is. We believe that God speaks to us through our unique experience. And so, you know, earlier I talked about that not knowing what was missing in the language of reconciliation. One of the gaps I realized early on was there weren't there weren't voices of Black women. There are a few Black women who have written in Reconciliation. Brenda Salter McNeil is one of them. Um, there are a few who have been leaders in it, Lisa Sharon Harper, Barbara Williams Skinner. But there weren't, there weren't a whole lot of perspectives that said, let me center the experience of African-American women. And so the pivotal idea in the Christian racial reconciliation movement that racism is about relationship, and that if we just knew each other better, everything would, would, would be well. Well, I told people, I said, if you had been talking to Black women, they could tell you within about two sentences why that wouldn't work, right? Because, you know, so I'm a lifelong Southerner. I'm from Georgia, the state where uh, I'm all. Aubrey was killed. And so I'm a lifelong Southerner. I am on both sides of my family, maternal and paternal side. I'm two generations removed from sharecropping, only a few more generations removed from slavery. My family members have been around white people all our lives. And there, a lot of my childhood socialization was about how learning how to deal with white people, learning what to expect from white people, learning how to protect myself around white people because we knew what came of um, that closeness we knew that proximity and even friendship even friendship didn't eradicate disparities right um, my grandfather told the story a long time ago Of um, he was an employee of delta airlines he retired from delta and at one point years ago you know, this was several decades before I was born. There was some offer of stock that was made available, not Delta stock. It was stock in some other company, but it was an offer that was made to Delta employees. And one day he and one of his white coworkers after work, they go down to this place together and, you know, they both got a hundred dollars and say, we want to buy a hundred dollars of your stock. And the, the agent looks at them and tells the white man says, okay, you can buy $100. But then he turns to my grandfather, he says, but you are only allowed to buy 50. Right? They had this, these are black and white men that work the same job. But right there, they were being given different opportunities. Right? And this was somebody that my grandfather thought was his friend, right? And his friend didn't protest his friend gave his $100 and said, yeah, I want that stock. And my grandfather took all of his money and walked away, right? But before that, they were friends, right? And friendship didn't end that, right? These are the stories that Black women tell. These are the stories I hear from um, my Black female relatives. These are the stories that have formed me growing up. Um, The stories of Black women who are nursing home caretakers, right now, I have relatives who care for elderly white people. I have relatives who are nannies for white children. I have relatives and um, extended family members, fictive kin, who have spent their lives cleaning the homes of white people. And that gives you a whole different perspective on race than when you're a black male pastor and a white male pastor who are coming together from your pulpits talking about friendship.
1: Yeah. Because generationally and relationally, proximity to white people has not substantially changed the lives or inheritance of Black people.
2: Yeah, and in some ways, for for Black women in particular, proximity can make it worse. It can actually dispose us to more forms of abuse. We have seen that in some of the narratives of enslaved Black women who were placed in the in the homes. You know, so we talk about the house slaves. Versus the field slaves and people often want to look at the experience of house slaves as so much better because you weren't out in the field. But you were also often having to live in that household. You were at the beck and call of that white mistress at every moment of your life. You, You could be sexually assaulted at any moment. You had no protection, no distance, right? You were always there. The terror was constant. And so we often don't think about that as that proximity doesn't actually necessarily make things better because power still structures relationships. So just because you're in relationship with someone doesn't mean it's a relationship of equal power.
1: Yeah. So to circle back to some of the language you were using about defeat and transformation and that more disruption is necessary, let's get really specific. So you teach at a seminary and I'm sure you're close with tons of different pastors and academics. And so what are some of the ways that you see disruption happening that you think is more fruitful than uh, an individualistic model or a friendship model? Um, What are some things that you can point toward?
2: So I think people need to be demanding accountability um, and people need to act and just do something. Get out of this idea that we're powerless to, to help this. There's a, a sort of sense of um, feigned powerlessness that comes up with white people and race and this idea that we can't do anything. Uh, but there's a lot that we can do and we don't have to do it on our own. We just have to figure out what action is already being taken um, in the places where we live and then participate in those movements.
1: Uh, thanks for using the phrase feigned powerlessness. I often hear folks in... Mainline churches or evangelical churches who would like to create some separation between the work of the church and the public sphere. So things you're pointing to are are political, they're social. they're the structures we have in our towns and our neighborhoods, our states, our federal government. And I think some people would say, "Well, that's not the work of the church. How would you respond to that? I don't think there's any work
2: that's not the work of the church. Um, we have this idea of politics as being anything that is outside the four walls of the church and anything that requires engagement with government is political. But the reality is, is that politics has to do with the life of the people. Um, it comes from the Greek word polis, which really has to do with the way our common life is structured in a city, in a town, right? Right. Um, and that if we are concerned about people's whole being, um, and, and I think we serve a God who's concerned about people's whole being, what we're called to do is to care about people's whole self. Like we, we serve a God who literally came down from heaven and fed people and washed their feet, right? Like that's a God that is concerned with people's whole being. And so then we have to be concerned with the systems and structures that contain and constrain those people's whole being right and so it's this way of saying you know you know there's there's a saying that you know if you if you give a man a fish he'll eat for the day if you teach a man the fish he'll eat for a lifetime well I've heard one preacher activist say I want to know who owns the pond who's making the decisions about which ponds get stocked with more fish than than other ponds right and so the church has to be involved in that if we're trying to to actually engage in the work of building God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. That doesn't mean taking the side of a political party. And that's, you know, that's what separation of church and state is about. We're not talking about taking the side of a political party. We're not even talking about trying to get into government and trying to demand that government be operated based on what we think as Christians and not be like it's not about trying to use government to force other people to live as Christians do but it's about identifying some some basic things that we think God wants for God's people um, which is health I think it should be fairness and justice and love and mercy compassion that if we, if we operate from those principles, then we say we need to make sure that life is fair, right? And that all of God's children get to partake in an equal share of the bounty of this land. So if we want to be concerned about the needs of the people, um, if you want to be concerned about the health of the people who sit in your pews, right? Then you have to look at the health system. You can't just say eat right and and exercise If when folks go to the doctor, um, well, first of all, they don't have health coverage, right? Because we don't require it. Or that then even when they go to the doctor, um, doctors don't take their concerns seriously because of their racial bias, right? Those are the types of things that as Christians, we can intervene in.
1: One of the things I appreciate about your book is that you don't pretend that any of this work is simple or easy. Or even work that you really want to have to do at all. <laughs> so talk a little bit about how you ground yourself in the midst of the the challenges.
2: That's hard. Um, at times, I want to give up on the work of racial justice. At times, I wish I could not see the world as being as full of systemic oppression. You know, I wish I could have, you know, kind of the the shutters over my eyes to not see, but kind of once you see it, it can't be unseen. And I wish I could not care. At times, I wish I could honestly give up on the church. I, I, I move into those temptations frequently because I think more effective work is being done by people in secular spaces who take this seriously and aren't as burdened. Um, because I think the burden sometimes of thinking if we're just good, nice Christians, that that burdens us in a way and weighs us down in a way that we can't do the work. But I'm I'm grounded in, for one thing, relationships, um, and this is where I do think relationships are important, with other justice-seeking Christians who can help shore me up and also affirm, like, it, it helps to have people who can affirm that you're not crazy right like because so much of this in our christian world is countercultural right that we can be we can we can be made to think that we're crazy for being the one for advocating for fairness for advocating for inclusivity in the different spaces we're in and so we can start to doubt ourselves so it helps to have a community and for me i found some places that are formal communities and places I need to go to every year. The Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference is a place, that conference I feel they need to go to every year because it's a place where, okay, there are other people in the world, there are other Christians in the world, black Christians in the world who are as passionate about these issues as I am from an intersectional lens. And so I think there are different spaces where you need to find your people in your niche. Um, I found them at some of the Sojourners events. I found them in different places in different times and then and building those relationships. So I do think it helps to have a community. I'm not trying to do this work by yourself. You, you got to find a community. And then my own practices of devotion and meditation and self-care. It really helps me to find ways to be a whole person outside of the work. Um, so that I can engage in the work because the, the, the work of advocating for justice is um, something that requires us to enter the fray over and over again. And it wears us down, which I think is another reason we're seeing the health disparities that we're seeing um, with re- relation to this um, COVID pandemic. Um, they've been there. Activists, I think, often die at a much faster rate. And that's something people talk about in activist communities. And now we're seeing that with this with this pandemic is becoming much more national. So for me, it's really important for me to balance my, my activism into rooted out of love for myself, but also love for other people. And so anytime that we find that we can no longer love, not just the folks that we call our people, whoever those are, but also the people you call the enemy. Like when we're getting to that point where we cannot love um, and we cannot find any love, then we are probably in a place where we have been traumatized and we need to pull back. Um, We're experiencing compassion fatigue and we need to pull back and we need to engage in some real restorative care and nurturing so that we can go back into the work because we have to do it out of love we have to do it out of love for humanity we have to do it out of love for god and we have to do it out of love for ourselves and so i think all the practices for me which are daily right it, it is about how i get up in the morning and whether or not i stretch in the morning and whether or not i go do my scripture reading and my meditation in the morning this morning It was about stopping when I happened to get on Twitter um, in the midst of a rant about Ahmaud Arbery. And I noticed the Samuel DeWitt Proctor was doing their morning prayer and and devotional time. And it was about stopping and participating in that, right? And, And singing the songs, singing It Is Well with my soul and thinking, yes, right, all right, it is well, right? I serve a God for whom it is well. And so it is those practices and taking the time to
1: stop even in the midst of that urgency. Well, thank you so much for that, Shaniqua. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sherry Osting. Our producer is Ni Ado-Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amar Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.